I'm Professor Shane Greenstein, and you're listening to the Harvard Business School Digital Initiative Seminar, a premier seminar series that hosts thinkers and scholars who are pushing forward research on the digital transformation of the economy by conducting and connecting with cutting-edge leaders, equipping leaders, and building community, the Digital Initiative seeks not just to study, but also to shape digital transformation. To learn more, check out digital.hbs.edu. Okay, so uh, it's it's great pleasure to uh, have Joel Waldfogel here today, um, uh, and who's going to talk about his book, and uh, I have to say, it's the easiest digitization seminar to schedule ever, because Joel's having a book tour. Like, okay, come on, that's just that's just that's just easy. So, okay, so we uh, tend to go around the room and introduce ourselves, so you know who you're talking to, okay. and we'll start with somebody you do know, but we'll please go ahead. My Hello, hello again. Hello. Uh, Ryan Jewell, Jason. Michael Elts. Hey, Elts is around. Chad Kamenakis. Frank Sessions. Eric Mankin. Well, Chad Kwan. Oh, Shane Greenstein. Uh, Finn Jewell. Okay. And? Natalia, right? Thank you. Uh, oh, and one more. Oh, and introduce yourself. Uh, yeah. 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 Cool. Oh, wow. <clears throat> um, a lot of uh, familiar faces and some new ones. It's, uh, it's nice to be here. So let me begin by, uh, apologizing is the wrong word, but because this is a book talk, it means I'm going to talk about a lot of things instead of just one little thing that we can pound on, the way academic seminars usually work. I'm happy, though, to take questions at any time and talk a little more than, I, than, I have sli than my slides suggest about anything you'd like to talk about. Uh, <clears throat> but if you don't, I, have, I, have, I also reserve the right to kind of defer tough questions to, to the end. But, uh, no, but seriously, I'm happy to talk about this. Uh, and thank you for having me. So uh, the first thing I guess to say is, uh, so there's the, there's the, uh, the self-advertisement, that's Princeton University Press, and I guess the point I wanted to make on this slide is not just that the book exists or will exist in a few weeks. It physically exists but isn't for sale, but that it makes a really good holiday gift. <laughs> <laughs> Some of you understand that bad joke. Um, <clears throat> all right, enough about that. So digitization. Um, Digitization means a lot of different things, and it'll come up as we go, what the, some of the various different things that it means. But one of the things that digitization means in the cultural industries was the bad news of low-cost copying, the bad news of easy copying. So Napster is kind of the shot across the bow of how digitization arrives to, uh, to uh, particularly music, but eventually every, uh, every one of these industries. And it's not just that. I mean, so if you think about bad news and good news from digitization, one kind of bad news is Napster. People can steal or obtain things without paying, which makes it hard to make money. But it's not just that. Even, you know, 10 years later, you have um, streaming and music, which we can think of as good news or bad news, but certainly many artists and rights, rights holders have complained bitterly about the low payments from streaming, as though it, were, as though it too were, were bad news. And we'll talk, I'll talk more about that as we go. Now, in addition to that bad news, there's some arguably, at least potentially, better news uh, that, yes, on the one hand, it's tougher to, to generate revenue. It's tougher to make money. But on the other hand, it's at least plausible to think that the costs of production and distribution and promotion, the various activities required to bring cultural products to market, have fallen. 
And so there's at least potential, potential good news. And I think the other thing to say is that it's, it's easier to bring new products to market, not just period, but also without the investment and permission of the traditional intermediaries. That's going to be a big part of this story. The old world is a world in which you need investment and permission, and that's a world that's, that's changing. So one version of what's happening then is that, oh, now we have amateurs and barbarians uh, storming the gates meaning you know, people who produce things but really haven't been carefully vetted and so forth. And so there are these threats to intermediaries, uh, the studios, the labels, the publishing, oh, not hoses, houses, I gotta fix that, <laughs> publishing houses. Uh, and, and what these are really, I mean, it's not just these entities in their capacity as you know, profit-making entities, but let's be, you know, let, let's give them their due. These entities have been involved in a lot of nurture of great art. And I'll tell you some you know, stories as we go, but there's some real nurture and curation Something that I would sort of generically call adult supervision that has happened in these industries, and there's there some real threats to that. And it's not hard to find serious uh, critics really uh, you know, worrying about the amateur work and the potential kind of onslaught of amateur work. You know, all we have is the great seduction of citizen media, democratized content, and so forth. Cory Doctorow has this wonderful expression uh, in, in reference to a self-publishing site. He referred to it as an open slush pile. Um, <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey, which will come up many times, how could it not? Uh, people who read it, who have actually tried to read it and have some knowledge of literature, don't take away the notion that it's a very good book. All right. So there, there's maybe some real reason to be concerned about uh, even the arguably good news from digitization, that many creators can bring their products to market. So some folks expect then, or would have expected, a cultural stone age on the horizon. I mean, obviously, you've seen the title of the book. So this is probably not where I'm going to end up. But to be fair, to be fair, those folks who wring their hands uh, are making some, some good points. I'm making some good points about the high investments involved and the nurture and so forth. All right. And I'll get back to that as I talk about some of the particular industries. Uh, one of the reasons to care about this topic is to think about public policy and in particular copyright. So if we think about digitization and how it interacts with copyright, you know, you have to keep in mind that these cultural products are really both expensive and risky. These are two distinct important things. So the, the major motion picture, you know, the, the Motion Picture Association, the major Hollywood studios, they stopped reporting the average budget number, but last time they reported it, it was $100 million. It was upward of $100 million per movie, and it's, it's still rising for the major movies released into theaters. That's expensive. In the music industry, uh, they argue, and I think with some justification, that they're an extremely investment-intensive industry. They spend a great deal of money bringing products to market, not just recording them, but distributing them and promoting them and so forth. And so they would say, and I think there's some real sense to it, that without protection, it would be very hard to finance uh, creativity. And so what is copyright? Well, copyright grants creators monopolies, um, which are, you know, these rights are meant to provide incentives for continued creation. Now, everybody agrees monopoly is a bad thing, so we must be doing this for some, some good reason. And I think the idea traditionally has been, well, we're going to go ahead and grant these monopolies, create these deadweight losses and so forth, because it will provide adequate incentives for people to continue creating and bringing new products to market. So what happened, you know, digitization removed, reduced effective production, and a lot of people have argued we need other countervailing changes to restore creative incentives. We need to hang pirates, we need to do this, we need to do that, uh, to restore where we were. Well, 
I got to thinking, and this is, some of you have heard parts of this story before, many of you I'm sure have heard some parts of this story before, but about, I don't know, eight years ago or so, after I moved to Minnesota, I got to be kind of wondering about how would we even know whether copyright is working after digitization? And uh, just to put you in the frame of mind, I mean, there had already been a bunch of research at that time asking the question, how is piracy affecting the revenue of producers? That was the hot research question around 2003, 4, 5, 6. Um, in this area. How is revenue affecting, how is uh, 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 digitization, in particular piracy, affecting the revenue of, let's say, the music industry? And that question, which is, of course, a very important question to some players, is, is in some sense not the right question if you want to know, is copyright working? So that's indirectly relevant. If nothing else had changed but revenue, then revenue falling would portend the Stone Age. And that's all you need to do is look at revenue. But if other things are changing, that's not really sufficient. You know, cost reduction might render lower revenue sufficient. We have arguably, and I think actually experienced offsetting shocks, so it's more like a horse race where we should go, go looking. And in particular, I think the right question, the better question, what's happened to the quantity and quality of cultural products under digitization? That's the question, if we could answer, that we should go after. So I don't know how good the focus is, but that's the road to Damascus there, my conversion to think this is a better question than what's happening to revenue. I mean, again, revenue is still a super important question for many entities. So I don't, uh, there's a, a lot of interesting research. You know, our friends at Carnegie do a lot of cool research about that. And it is an interesting, important question. But it's not necessarily the right question if you're thinking about, is copyright working? You know, are we getting, uh, are we getting what we want from this, these industries, generally? All right, so now, oh, please. Hey, how you doing? Um, so, if you had replaced that example with photography, mm -hmm. right, you would probably say that today we have much better photography and much more photography because we've moved to digital. Yep, yep, yep. Right? But if you asked the producers in that industry, they would be very unhappy with that as a result. You bet. And so, I, like, I, I guess I'm wondering how to think about this, this sort of, or how you think about this contrasting sort of from a welfare point of view, where I totally buy your argument to yeah. a sort of success of the industry or continuation of the industry. So photography actually is not a major industry in the book, but I do spend a bunch of time on it. I mean, it's, it's astounding what's happened to photography. The number of images created, and I don't remember the numbers exactly, but we're talking about like two orders of magnitude increase in the number of images commercially available. Because it used to be, you know, it was Getty and so forth, but then Getty licensed from Flickr, and then Getty set up this, this uh, 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 this other agent, this other entity within Getty that sells amateur photography. The prices are, and it's a little hard to figure it out, but the prices are about one tenth as large. You know, to buy an image, the use of an image, and and yet, if you talk to people in the industry, you look at what they say. They say it's terrible. Any idiot can make a decent photograph. Now listen to that. It's terrible because products are cheap and good. Uh, now, I mean, again, to be fair, there may be some aesthetic elements that are being lost, but it's a fascinating industry because although some identifiable entities are suffering. If you just look at what the industry produces, the number of products, and not revenue, because revenue is a different animal, but the number of products and the usage of it, it's not an unhealthy industry at all. It's just that the, some of the, the old models are, are suffering. So we'll come back to this. I think when we talk about each of the industries a little bit. Um, so yeah, it happens. You scratched a, a nerve there on <laughs> photography. Um, so one of the, I want to talk a little bit about sort of the theory about how might digitization improve quality. And the key thing here is to talk about the unpredictability of product quality, which I think is a, a feature of many products, but it's well understood to be a feature 
that, that, that is present in, with, um, with uh, cultural products, books, music, movies, television, and so forth. And so if we think about digitization as cost reduction, and then think in turn about cost reduction as something that allows creators to try more things, to take more draws from the creative urn, how might that play out? Now, the reason I have a picture here of, uh, of William Goldman's adventures in the screen trade, and by the way, he also wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and the Princess, uh, Princess Bride, so he's really an authority who doesn't get cited enough by economists. But anyways, um, in his book, he says all over this book, nobody knows anything, and he's describing the ability of Hollywood to predict which movies will find favor with consumers. Nobody knows anything. That's, that's the world we live in. So how might digitization, or how might digitization improve quality? Well, think about the, the process sort of stylized in this way. Investors, who are the studios or the publishing houses or the, the, the record labels, they hear a pitch or they hear a demo tape. They make a guess about the marketability of the work. And they greenlight the projects that they expect, they, they, you know, if the expected revenue, basically if their guess about is this going to succeed, is good enough to, that it exceeds the cost. Now, if Remember, I said before there are reductions in revenue and reductions in cost, so you don't even know necessarily yet whether there would be an increase in the number of products. Turns out there is going to be a huge increase in the number of products in all these industries. So if the number of new works rises, then what happens? The question is what happens to the volume of, quote, good? And by good, I want to be clear, I don't mean aesthetically good. I mean valuable to consumers. So that's all I'm going to mean by good. Uh, cultural studies folks don't like me. But anyways, um, what happens to the volume of good work available to consumers? So let me tell you how I think it doesn't work, which will help us understand maybe how it does. Suppose that instead of the nobody knows anything world, suppose it were perfectly predictable at the time investment decisions had to be made, which products would be successful and which products would not. You know, think about this as the distribution of these projects according to their expected uh, and, and realized revenue since it's a perfect predictability world. There's some threshold Everything better than that threshold gets released, and then costs fall, and now a bunch of new stuff gets released. Notice, though, all the new stuff, it's valuable to consumers, but it's not very valuable. It's all, in fact, literally worse than the worst old thing. Right? So in the world of full predictability, cost reductions that increase the number of products would be a little bit beneficial, but not very beneficial to consumers. The world we do live in is close to the nobody knows anything world, or let's just take that as a first approximation. In that world, now you, you start releasing more products, and because of this lack of predictability, some of them are terrible, but some of them are not. And what really matters for us as a society, and even in the industries, is the products that end up near the, in the right tail of the distribution. That's where really a lot of the welfare revenue and so forth tends to be. And so, in a world without predictability, cost reductions can give rise to the release of products that have less ex-ante promise, uh, but more ex-post success. So this is going to be sort of a big point I come back to a lot. The release of products with less ex-ante promise leads to a greater number of products with ex-post success and value. And so, so I'll use this word over and over again, I just want to say what I mean. You know, again, these investors have to make a decision, they have to make a guess, how good is it? And that's the ex-ante promise of the product. And the ex-post is going to be how well does it sell? Or for me, where is it in the sales distribution? Is it a bestseller? Is it not a bestseller? That kind of thing. So, so John, oh, please. Just you have heard versions of this talking for many years. One of the, one of the funny things is that um, your folk, uh, if you, forgive me, if this weren't media, mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. you, would, you would say, 
well, we used to have fresh peas, and now we're going to have even sweeter peas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And, and you're ignoring frozen peas in, in some sense. Uh, I, I'm making the metaphor deliberately to make the, the to ask you sort of the question: if if the reduction in cost allows you to get frozen peas, lower quality than fresh, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right now becoming available. Doesn't it really depend on elasticity of demand? So uh, elasticity of demand for frozen peas in, in every time of the year other than the spring is actually quite high. So the welfare value is quite high actually from making available all the mediocre quality stuff um, that technology permits you to get with mm -hmm, low cost. Mm -hmm. And, and to focus on, oh, now we've got an even better peak, yep, yep. is actually in some sense not focused on the, what, what's really driving welfare. And so oh, no, so I don't, I don't agree. And, so, and, and I'll come back to this a lot, but yeah, I think, so one version... the three stooges versus, uh, <laughs> versus no, so the godfather. If you think right? about, <laughs> and so this will come up, let me just say this now, and it'll come up again, and now see, see if, and we can continue this discussion yeah. as we go. I mean, if you think about the, the long tail, uh, something people yeah. talk about a lot, the long tail. And the usual notion of the long tail is the notion that instead of the 50,000 books at your local bookstore, there are a million books at Amazon. And think about that. So what it is, it's, it's not about production. It's about a long shelf, infinite shelf space. And what you can get access to through Amazon is the other 950,000 low demand books, the frozen peas in your example. Okay. Now, that's a big deal. I agree that's a big deal. But the story here is going to be not just having access to a million, but if you have a world where you change the number of products that get produced in the first place, it's not just adding a, a tail that's all worse than what you already had, all of which is valuable. I'm not dismissing that there's value in the tail. What I'm saying is, in this world of unpredictability, you get some new head products as well as tail products. So my world contains your world and more. So let's, let me do the industries and, and let's come back to this. I think, I think that's, that's what we're talking about. But, okay. 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 Oh, please. So just a couple of follow-up questions about uh, quality mm -hmm. and how you define it. So, so picking up on your example, if you think about newspapers, one of the stories you often hear is, is oh gosh, like there's certain kinds of stories that newspapers just don't cover anymore, hmm. like local stuff or regulatory changes or whatever it is. Great. But on the flip side, there's many other things that they cover. So yeah. how do one think about that? In the same spirit, to your work, does I mean, that graph is sort of almost, it, it, it's, it's vertically differentiated, right? But mm -hmm. I'm thinking, does digitization overcome the tyranny of the majority? Yes, I think it does. Fixed costs and, yeah, yeah. and so in that sense, again, quality is, I'm not sure how to think about quality. Right? But again, I mean, all that's, uh, so later when I do welfare analysis, that won't talk, come up a lot here, you know, I'm going to be thinking about, um, you know, differentiated products. I'm going to be thinking about ways to evaluate the value of the choice set to, to people. Uh, where the products can be are differentiated. I think that is an important feature. It's not. It's not. It doesn't have to be purely vertical for this. Uh, for this to. For this story to work. I mean, all, all I'm saying so far is that. You get some new products, and they're not all worse than the old ones. If they had been worse than the old ones, that'd still be beneficial. You know, if we had cost reduction and had more entry, yeah, yeah. that's great. That's great. We get the long tail. But it turns out that because of the unpredictability, we don't just get the long tail of realized sales. We also get some things that end up in the head. We get Justin Bieber, right? <laughs> Justin Bieber wasn't going to exist, and now he's a, a head product instead of a tail product. Yes? So on that unpredictability, so you've got sort of a zero one. How about like in the middle? No, no, it's not a zero one. It's, okay. I mean, I think it's, um, 
I mean, you have to either yes or no, yes or no release things, but I think no, but you I'm think about... about the distribution that's assumed underneath that, right? So, so you're saying um, it's unpredictable, mm -hmm. thanks to Mr. Goldman, right? Mm -hmm. But what if it's sort of predictable? Well, so I'll, I'm getting there. The JPE 2018, it's all about how unpredictable it is. So I'll get there. Depending on how we go, I'll get there. <laughs> no, great questions, though. <laughs> okay. So four questions. It's not that time of year, but four questions, three of which I'll talk about. Um, are there more new products? Is there more stuff? I already hinted yes. We'll talk a little bit about that. Can consumers and products find each other? I won't talk about that much in the talk today, but it's an interesting question. It's a really interesting question in a world with enormous numbers of products. I, I think the answer is yes, but in some sense, to the extent they can't, whatever I'm saying could be bigger if they could find each other. The key, though, is going to be, did the ex-ante losers end up among the ex-post winners? The products that now can come into existence, but that would have been given the hand before, do they end up in the right tail of the sales distribution to large and growing extents? Because if so, that's kind of important. And then the last question is, are the new vintages good compared with the old ones? Because this is enough to say that what's good amongst what's now being made is the stuff that wouldn't have made it through. That's not enough to say that this is a golden age compared to the past. We need to say something, ask something different to know if we're actually in a good vintage now relative to, to the past. So, okay. Let's go to the video. Yeah, uh, I'll talk. I don't know how many of these industries I'll actually talk about today. It depends on what we want to do, but that's sort of my plan uh, for each. How did it work? How did digitization affect it? And then answers to those questions. And maybe it's obvious, but I, I'm trying in this book to advance this evidence-based approach. It's not at all surprising, you know, to academics that we should be evidence-based. But if you look, there are a lot of areas of the world where evidence-based is a new thing. You know that evidence-based medicine is a new thing. I mean, it's shocking, right? And so, but, but you know, when we laugh at the doctors, ha, 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 how foolish they are. But evidence-based copyright policy is, is a non-existent thing. So uh, we can't really laugh at them. This is an attempt to build a body of evidence or to contribute to a body of evidence that might be helpful for that question. All right, music. Um, so how did the business traditionally work? There were a lot of folks who wanted to produce or to, 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 to make music. It was traditionally a pretty tough slog for artists to convince the gatekeepers, the record labels, to invest. You know, some really iconic artists, you might think, oh, it must have been easier. Uh, you know, for the Beatles, it was a really tough slog. It, one of the fun things about writing a book is you can spend time on stuff like that that really wouldn't make it into an article. And, you know, it's, it's fun. You can read about stuff. Rejected by nearly every label in Europe, you know, before, they, uh, before George Martin signed them. Um, the, the Born to Run, right, this, this iconic album, Bruce Springsteen's third album. So his first two albums were not very commercially successful. And yet Clive Davis stuck with him. He was in the studio 14 months recording that album, six months on the song Born to Run Alone. So, you know, if we're going to laugh about the notion of nurturing investment, I mean, there's some important nurturing investment associated with some of the most iconic, important products. But even if you got released, you know, it was tough to get on the radio. There used to be literally something called payola. You paid money to get on the radio. And it's well known that, uh, you know, Alan Freed, his career was ruined. You know, Dick Clark was caught up in that scandal, but he smiled at the congressional hearing and he, he got out. Um, and it was pretty tough to get in stores. All these things were really tough uh, in the old world. Now, I, I don't know if we'll spend any time on this. It's just despite all these challenges, there were a lot of triumphs of art and commerce. So with these, this is just some tables that show some very commercially successful and some very critically successful uh, albums. And it, what's interesting about this, I mean, I just like to stare at tables like this, so I'm a geeky in that way. But what's, I think that one interesting thing about it is that there, there is some correlation between what's commercially successful and what's critically successful. Actually, pretty high correlation, but by no means perfect. For example, Garth Brooks, 
is not in the Rolling Stone top thousand. <laughs> um, anyways, there seems to be an eighty. Top, uh, top 100, sorry, yeah, top 100. Yeah. But he, I don't think he's in the top 1,000 either. They don't really like him. So. Um, all right, fine. Anyway, so digitization arrives to music. Here's the standard picture. It's a, a picture of recorded music revenue in the US. And it had been rising for quite some time. And then around, right around 1999, when Napster appears, it begins falling. And it, it falls pretty much unabated. Actually, if you follow the industry, you know that it's finally risen in the past two years, streaming it, and we'll get back to that a bit, a bit later. But basically, digitization arrives, and it's a disaster. I mean, I don't know if Felix would, at this point, disagree with me, but most people would say uh, piracy was responsible for the collapse of revenue in, in the music industry. And even if it wasn't, there was some disaster visiting them. <laughs> okay, so was piracy the culprit? Uh, I think the short answer is yes. There was a research fight about this. Felix was involved, I was involved, uh, a lot of folks were involved. So I, I can make fun of this literature because I wrote some of the papers in it. it. Yeah, the answer, the longer answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, and on its own, this is what raises the call for stronger IP protection and enforcement. But costs fell. Costs fell. The, you know, if you think about what does production mean? You know, production used to require a studio and some specialized labor. Uh, now, there's a pretty fair studio on your iPhone and on any, any, uh, on any Mac, you know, GarageBand is installed. Distribution, you know, for $10, you could make your song available at iTunes through CD Baby. It means you have, you know, national distribution for $10. You don't need to bribe anybody or, or get things printed or put on trucks. And what happened was that the number of new products really did explode. It's a little hard to track down the data. I mean, so Nielsen has data on the number of products that show up in the sales database. It looks like about between 2000 and 2010, there was a tripling in the number of new products. And the other data sources look pretty similar. So certainly the answer is growth. Yes, please. Um, when you were talking about Napster, I remember that a lot of people who always wanted to support artists, always wanted to pay, they were just tired of having to pay like $18 for a CD. Mm -hmm. and, they, and they were just saying, I want to be sold an individual song. Yes. So they, people go, because they had a stranglehold of recording, and no, you just buy it and you yeah. don't have it. So yeah. there was a revolt. I mean, I'm, I'll admit, I, I was an illegal pirate, not much, <laughs> but because I wanted to only buy one or two songs. Right. And I did right. not appreciate being fleeced for the other nine songs that were garbage. Right. So, um, yeah, yeah. You know, I think that was a contributing factor. I, I think you're right. I mean, so, and it's interesting that. Suppose there had been no Napster, but there had been digitization. You know, a clever, uh, a clever person might have invented unbundling, although unbundling would, would be a mixed bag, right? Because I, I make more for the people who would, wouldn't have bought the album, but I make less for the people who would have. And, um, so I think you're right that, that some part of the story was about unbundling. Mm -hmm. But it's also interesting to think about how it, it's so easy in retrospect to, to criticize. But, you know, 1999, Napster comes along. The music industry is the first to face this and they, they don't really know what to do. And so it takes them, I mean, they, they do introduce some dreadful product offerings, you know, uh, MusicNet and PressPlay. Very high priced, very low functionality, tethered to your PC, not the way anybody wants to consume music. You know, it takes till 2003 when, you know, when Steve Jobs forces them to the table. And, and, and but it's, it's just, it's, it's interesting how, you know, how hard it was to respond, um, especially to go, to go first in that industry. Yeah. Joel, are you gonna, um so, so the thesis would suggest uh, uh, product explosion across genre, right? It should be independent of genre because it's the same cost thing affecting all of them. So do, do, do you have evidence of that? Uh, could we, or is that not t today's talk? So, so it's opera, not, it's, jazz. Yeah, so. Yeah, you know where I'm going. Right, 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 right. right, right, right. I'm Psycho. thinking of, of which of those <laughs> things. Know. Like, I, I'm 
pretty sure the answer is yes, but I don't have that. I don't have a table showing you that. But but yeah. uh, it is international, so it's not specific to the U.S. Right. It's uh, um, some of these data sets have genre in them, some of them don't. So it's a little harder. The reason I'm not just jumping to the answer is that some of them uh, don't actually have it. All right, but the, the question I want to address next is this lucky losers question. This is a very important question. Again, it's the, do the new products that get through but wouldn't have, do they end up in the right tail of the distribution at, with any frequency, and, does, and does, that, does that change over time? Now, what is an ex-ante loser in music? I think the structure of the music industry gives us a pretty reasonable way to think about this. There are major labels, there are indie labels. Now, it's not literally true that everyone on an indie labor label wants to be on a major, but it's almost literally true. What this table shows you is a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of uh, artists you've heard of who are now on major labels, but who are originally on indie labels. And the point is, although there is an issue about street credibility and so forth, uh, even, you know, even uh, Arcade Fire, REM, they eventually move over to major labels. The point of this table is to convince you that looking at Indie music as a measure of ex-ante losers is a reasonable thing to do. So uh, if you do, do look at it that way and then ask the question, among things that sell well, where I can come up with a time series. So this is the Billboard 200, which is the... Joel, Joel, yeah, please. Nick, just a language thing. They're not losers. They're just small and not a major. Yeah, no, to be fair, <laughs> what I'm, I'm making reference I'm making reference to, to uh, uh, so uh, I have to give away my punchline now, but Tom, Tom Petty's song, Even the Losers Get Lucky Sometimes. So I'm, I, <laughs> people of a certain age know that song. They're not really losers. It's, it's, they're not losers at all, really. It's just uh, even the losers get lucky sometimes. Um, so do these indies account for a growing share of sales? The answer is yes. So the Billboard 200, it's a little bit of a funny thing to look at in the sense that it's the top 200 albums, but it's something I can look at consistently over time. And what you do see is that if we go from about 13% to about 35% of the Billboard 200 uh, that, is, uh, uh, that, is, that hails from indie, that, that's on indie labels. And even if you look at the top of the distribution, it goes from 6 to, to 18%. And by the way, not, I don't have it in the slides today, but in the, in the book and in one of the papers, I have data on singles, single sales, digital single sales, which shows similar patterns. So a high and very much rising share of what turns out to be successful originates in this indie sector in music. Yeah, there's Tom Petty, even the losers go. <laughs> um, Joel, it seems to me you've got a supply side argument and an implicit demand side argument I, that I am wondering whether this mm -hmm. table makes explicit. On the supply side, I buy. Costs come down, you know, what's the poet's phrase? More mute and glorious Milton's get to go. Who knew there's a market, 50 shades of gray, market for sexy hair. Right, right. right, right, right. That sort of thing. Right. But on the demand side for cultural products, you have an implicit buyer behavior that says, I can now find what I couldn't find mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. the past. But there's an alternative view about uh, buying for cultural products. Um, Duncan Watts, who I think is... Oh, right. Who, anything you put in front of people and tell them it's good, they'll no, buy. No, no. Watts is a bit more subtle than that. He's talking about cumulative advantage, and he's saying that for cultural products, there's a social dynamic that says uh, it's no coincidence the Beatles become the Beatles when they get to EMI. 
what I'm interested in is what other people are interested in, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. I think is yep. congruent with your definition of quality. It's called yep. sales. Yep. Yep. Does this table put the lie to that? Well, I mean, perhaps in the sense that these, if you think about these products as, ha as, as having less legitimacy, right? So in the Duncan Watts experiment sense, I'm not on the front page, and yet I end up on the front page. Somehow I get discovered, right? So I'm not, it's not that the, the tastemakers say, here's what you're going to like this year, and you like it. These are what somebody else who's not in some, the commercially successful tastemakers, uh, these, these products are appearing and finding their way to the right tail of the distribution. So, I mean, I, none of this denies that the Duncan Watts type effects uh, can be important, but somehow this stuff is coming out of left field. I'm going to start mixing metaphors and ending up in the right tail. And so. <laughs> <laughs> but the issue, I think, with cultural products has always been no one, no one I think, argues that talent doesn't come in all shapes and sizes, that digitization means lower costs. I mean, I don't know anyone right. who argues against that. Right. But you're making a point about marketability, and there, there is an argument about whether this is more marketable or not. And this is an interesting table. I haven't seen yeah. this. So, you, I mean, but marketable like post. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, what, to me, what this suggests, and, and I'll show you evidence like this for the other industries, what this suggests is that um, the, the, the decision makers, the gatekeepers, were doing this imperfectly. Now, that's not to say it could have been done better. Because I, I think they were doing it as well as one might as, as one could do it. It's just an, it. yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's a good one. <laughs> the something is compounded here during this period of time by all these other so-called innovations of like social media, mm -hmm. uh, all these things, right? So, so without, so imagine a world without those right. social media. Um, maybe the the the, the uh, major students were doing a reasonably good job. So you mean if so in, in the in the world of let's in the world of darkness, the, their decisions were light, but in a world of light, their decisions are are fallible. I mean the way I would think. So I, I like the point. The way I think about that is that the the part I didn't say I said I wouldn't talk much about is this whole product discovery issue, and I think social media plays a big role in that. And it's it's the mecha, so how does this happen? How do these products from left field get discovered? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So you, I don't, it'd be hard for me to disentangle, but I, I do think of the book talks a little bit about this. I do think of the social media. I mean, so just this, when people say over the years, people have said to me, gosh, though, so many products, it, it's impossible to discover them. And so this can't be true. And my response to that is, well, first of all, discovery is happening. So it must be true. But secondly, here's a theoretical argument in quotes. In the old world, the way we tested a song was to put it on the radio and make 50,000 people listen to it eight times before we decide whether it's a hit. That's 50,000 times eight, you know, whatever. A lot of person hours go into one instance of experimentation. In the new world, it's at YouTube or Spotify. 16 people listen to it and give thumbs up. And now it begins to propagate. It strikes me that the cost of discovering things may well have gone down. So this is just to, to agree with you. Really, this is just to agree with you that there's a really important... Um, where I, I'm mostly anecdotes about this, but I think there's a really interesting set of issues of how it is that we discover the products from left field. I mean, and, and it's even worse in some sense in other media. I mean, books, I, I will get to it, but I mean, there's so many, there's so many new products uh, that this discovery problem is, is sort of a big deal. Uh, all right, so is the good, the, my last question in my list of four questions is, 
is the new music good compared with the old music? And I have two broad ways to, to, to look at this. Uh, one does involve critics, which is not, you know, when one involves consumption behavior, but the one that involves critics looks at these multi-year best of lists and asks, well, what year, in what year did a lot of good stuff come out? So maybe the most famous example is Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums. And if you bin those into the years when they were released, that's what the history of music looks like. You know, it reached a peak in 1970, and it's mostly downhill since then. <laughs> um, <laughs> does, that, does that account for, like, so that, that was done in, what, 2009? No, this was earlier. This was 2003 or something. Okay, so 2003. Yeah. If you, if you did the same exact thing 20 years before that, 1983, yeah. would you have been in the 50s? Yeah, so good 70s. question. I have a little bit of evidence about that because I have a few. I'm going to show you in a minute. I have a lot of these. I don't, and, I, and some of them, in some cases, I have the same entities doing it twice. Um, I, so I can't perfectly deal with that. But I'm going to have a couple of different ways at that. It's a concern, right? You think about Jan Wenner, right? And people his age sitting in a room smoking pot saying, God, the 70s were great. And you wonder if that's what, you know, it was great to be 20 years old. Um, one, one wonders about that. Um, and then, so, again, it's just, it's, that, that's a kind of a fun list. 1970, the high water mark of music. You look at that list, and actually, many of us probably know most of those albums. They're really durable. It's really durable music. Uh, I wasn't very old then, but I still do know a lot of these, a lot of these songs. Um, so is new music good compared with the old? Well, what I did is I found not just Rolling Stone, but a whole bunch of different lists. So th these are, and what this is, the chronological coverage of the different lists, and these are the different lists. So I have a bunch that go back to 1960. And then I have a bunch that cover the period after the <coughs> Okay, and some of these, so uh, Pitchfork um, does some of these at multiple points in time, and I can see at least how they treat the most recent stuff. There certainly is some different view of very recent stuff in, in some of these lists. But when I do that, I can const essentially construct that picture for each of these lists, and then I can statistically stick them together, splice them together, and oh, so. I'm going to lean hard on lists from 2000 to the present, because that's the period when revenue collapsed. And so it would be nice to be able to argue that there's some kind of signal and not just noise in these lists. And so one thing I did was I looked at all the, the albums that appeared on those lists since the 2000s and asked, well, okay, how many lists are they on? And so Arcade Fire's Funeral is on 47 of, I think, the 50 or so lists I look at. Great concordance. Radiohead Kid A, 47, The Strokes, 45. There's an enormous amount of concordance. Now, you could say that there are a bunch of sheep following each other, or you could say that there's signal here and not noise. It's kind of, at the end of the day, you have to decide uh, what you think. But my, my point of putting this up is to say it looks like there's some signal in the, in the lists that cover the period that we most care about, the period of revenue. So those lists are made up of supposed experts, or is it so, a crowd-based list? Great question. Sorry, I should have said this. These are all experts in the sense that these are all like music magazines or music websites. So Pitchfork is the most prominent example, but Consequence of Sound, Spin, all these, um, I mean, I don't know, experts. I mean, they're, they're professionals. Mm -hmm. All right, so what happens to the critic-based quality index? Uh, there we have this. For This is basically splicing things together up to 1999. And after 1999, what happens is Remember, revenue is collapsing. This quality index goes flat. So uh, Jane and I were talking about one-handed economists a minute ago. You could say that since it was falling and now it's rising, that it's rising, or was falling. And it, that's a kind of a two-handed economist argument. The point I would make about the critic stuff is that in contrast to the revenue collapse, this is a contrast to the revenue collapse. 
okay? Um, now, what I want to do next, though, is to talk about a usage-based approach. Because if I'm really going to be an economist about this, I really, I don't care what critics think. I care what consumers think. And so what I'd like to do is to use revealed preference to draw some inferences about what, what constitutes quality. So here's the, the idea, and I can do it better in music than in some other media. But uh, what I want to do is, is create a measure of vintage quality based on the service flow and consumer decisions based on sales or airplay data. And so the idea is that if a vintage, if a particular vintage is better than another vintage, that it would be used more conditional on its age. Now at any point in time, old music is going to be used less than new music. That's just depreciation. But suppose you had enough data, you could flexibly account for depreciation. Then you'd be able to see a vintage at various different ages and say, is it being used more or less than vintages typically get used at that age? That's the whole idea. That's the whole idea. Now what I have, I have airplay data from 2004 through 2008 by vintage, going back to the beginning of time. And I have sales data, at least when I originally did this, what I had was sales data, not the total sales, but rather the, the sales of the certified albums, the gold and the platinum and so forth, which is a small share of albums, but a large share of, share of sales. Okay. And so from that, I can construct, at any year, I know what share of the sales this year are for music that was released this year versus what share of sales of music this year is for music originally released last year and back to the beginning of time. And so this is, I think, I don't need to say this, this is the geeky detail slide, but that's all I'm going to do is run this regression of the log of the share by time and vintage on flexible age dummies for depreciation and then recover the vintage dummies from the regression to come up with my index. And when I do that, look what I get. There's music quality based on, on US Airplay. There it is based on RIAA sales data. Kind of interesting. They're both totally independent of each other and totally independent of the critics. And they also reveal that the 1970 was essentially the high point, high watermark <laughs> in music quality, usefulness. But then what happens afterwards? A little bit of suspense here. Um, mm, yeah, thank you. <laughs> oh. So something really kind of interesting happens. We have this explosion in new products, and it's apparently not all junk, in the sense that the, these newer vintages seem to be used more, conditional on their age. Okay. Yeah, oh, please. How much, uh, so I'm sure you probably deal with this in the econometrics, but how much of the so increase they done after 2000 may be confounded by the, sort of the consumers, the Asian profile consumers, who are able to use the uh, newer sales mechanisms as channels more? Well, what I have been able to see is that um, the, old, the old products are very ubiquitously available. And so even when I have digital data, I'm not reporting the pictures here, but when I have data on digital uh, based on a sales of digital singles, which was really a big deal between about 2003 and 2009 or something, or 11. Um, by this time, there, it's not just that I only have access to recent things. People are, are choosing among essentially all things, and I see very similar patterns. So it makes me uh, not think that it's about availability of recent things. Um, what about the people, the, the age for like young, young consumers? Who, who listens to a 70 song or something? I don't know. <laughs> right. I mean, it's so it's it's if people are so I don't have data by age. I wish I did. Nobody that I know of has those data. Um, what I do have, um, in one case, I have data going back to 1970. And so, I mean, what's interesting is that the data, and the reason I'm mentioning this, even though it's not doesn't cover the age distribution of people since 2000, is that there have been interesting demographic shifts between 1970 and, and say 2000. And the data 
Remember, the airplay data are, are all driven by airplay during the period 2004 to 2008, whereas all the, the stuff in this picture here is being identified with data from back to 1970. The point being that a very different set of people, the baby boom aging versus what's happening in 2004 to 8, is giving really similar patterns. So it's only indirectly relevant to your point, but your general point is, well, what, what if people, what if there's some different people arriving now who have different be behavior, not just with respect to vintage, but even recency period? You know, if they somehow, new people, young people now just like new things, period, independent of quality. At some level, that's indistinguishable from new things being good, if they're the ones buying stuff. But anyways, I think this, this provides something on your point, yeah. Airplay means what's played on commercial radio? Yes, yes. So since in the last two years, recorded music revenue, so let's put concerts aside, uh, in the last two years it's actually risen. Spotify, the, the revenue being generated by uh, uh, subscription streaming has risen substantially faster than the reductions in other forms of revenue. So after a long period of decline, you know, even with the appearance of iTunes selling digital singles, the, the, the decline just plowed right through that, with a little bit of uh, deceleration, uh, and continued. But in, starting in 2016, there was a substantial turnaround. I mean, it's, we're still way, I mean, we, they're still way below, uh, although it's very hard to know how to compare revenue since revenue on digital products doesn't include trucks and stuff and, and CDs. Right. Um, and they don't actually, they don't, they don't talk as much about the things they used to talk about. They don't talk as much about piracy as they used to um, the last few years. Okay, so my bottom line is that yes, a golden age in music, no evidence that vintage quality has declined, more compelling evidence that has increased. Now it is hard to know what might otherwise have been, right? So the whole bunch of things happened. We had revenue fell, costs fell. We don't really know, uh, you know, what if only costs had fallen? Maybe it would be much better than it actually is. But I think, and you think about the policy context of this discussion, if it, it's one thing to say uh, it, it's a catastrophe because music's only a lot better than it used to be, instead of a lot, a lot, a lot better than it used to be. It seems like a very different, uh, very different contrast, or very, very different kind of argument one might might make. So I'd say it's a golden versus potentially a platinum age. It's also a big contrast to the traditional industry view about you know that the technology has been a disaster, and you'll find smart people saying that it's disaster for consumers, right? They'll say it's a disaster not just for us, the industry, but also it's a disaster for consumers. All right, talk a little bit about movies. Let's see how we're doing on time. I'll probably just talk about movies then, then go on from there. Um, so movies are a big deal, a big deal industry for the US. As I mentioned before, it's a high investment, $100 million a movie. The old model, especially since Jaws, I mean, different people date it to different events, but you know that the model is, aim for a blockbuster distributor on a thousand or more screens and that model does require you to kind of aim aim high in the sense that if you're going to distribute in theaters you need a lot of people need, need, near each theater wanting to come see the movie so only high expected revenue movies are sensible investments and the way the industry has worked for the most of the, you know the past whatever number of years release a couple hundred movies a year that are aimed for mass distribution some people cut it at 500 screens some some of a thousand um, and there are a few hits that end up being popular around the world for the U.S. industry and on home video, and those those finance the rest. That's kind of how this, in, and it's actually an amazing industry in terms of the the use of windowing. Um, it's been a very successful industry for uh, intertemporal price discrimination. 
So digitization arrives. In, in movies, it's not so much piracy. Sure, there's piracy. Tons of piracy in some places. But there isn't a before-after shock. There isn't, revenue hasn't tumbled as a result of new piracy. Um, so there's no Napster-like collapse of revenue. Instead, digitization is mostly about cost reduction. Um, so a lot of different components here. Literally, production of movies has become trivially inexpensive. It used to be you shot on film with a Panavision camera that cost a quarter of a million. I mean, you rented it, but it was very expensive. You had to process the film. So it was even, you know, it was hard for students to make movies. They didn't use Panavision, but they used film. Um, now, for $2,000, since about 2008, for $2,000, you can buy a camera that's good enough for cinema quality work. It's, 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 a, it's kind of amazing. Distribution is, has been revolutionized. So Netflix is, of course, a big deal, but Netflix, remember, is heavily curated. The fact that Netflix exists doesn't mean you get to distribute through Netflix. They have to buy your movie. But Amazon Instant is unfiltered, pretty much unfiltered, as is Apple. So you can make a movie and make it commercially available to people through these non-subscription, through the a la carte channels. And you no longer need a bunch of people near each theater to want to watch it. And so that means narrower interest movies are viable. Uh, yeah, so there's Greta Gerwig. Um, Think about the potential explosion in Greta Gerwig movies. Actually, there's an actual explosion in Greta Gerwig movies too. But um, so there has been a big growth, you know, in the number of movies produced. Remember, the first question is more new products. Yes, uh, a lot of new new products in the U.S. These are features. In 2000, it's a number like 1160. In 2016, it's a number like 3400. Okay. Now, you know, we could ask the question, what's a movie? Because in IMDb. Uh, you can put anything in there, and so these numbers seem a little big when you consider the number of movies broadly or widely in theaters is a number like two or three hundred. Well, if you go to uh, to JustWatch.com, one of my favorite websites, where you can go check and see on all the platform, all the digital platforms by country, how many movies are available. What this shows you is the number of commercially available movies for the same period goes from 560 up to about 3,700. The reason it declines is because the digital distribution windows are such that the most recent movies might not be available. But again, uh, we're seeing a pretty big increase in the number of movies that are not, that are commercially available and therefore not just cats on Roombas uh, at YouTube. So lucky losers. This is much harder to study in movies. Why? Because the, the revenue for the non-theatrical stuff is all confidential. So I'm, I'm going to show you the, the, the share of uh, of revenue that goes to independent film, and it's been rising with some fluctuation. I'm going to try here to use, so at IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, people can rate movies. The number of people rating a movie is highly correlated with box office revenue among the movies for which there is box office revenue. So if I use that as a measure of intensity of interest, I can say, well, what's happening to the share of, in, of interest uh, to the independent movies, the ones not from major studios, and it seems to be rising over this period as well. But again, this is not where I wish I had the stuff that's all secret. I wish I knew what was happening at Netflix, Amazon, Comcast On Demand, and so forth, but, but I don't. Is the new stuff good? So um, now here I'm, I'm going to mostly rely on critics, but I have a little bit to say about user-based, some user-based information. Deadpool. Everyone knows that's a great movie. It's got an 84 at Rotten Tomatoes. So I'm going to construct a Deadpool index. What is this? This is the number of movies by year in Rotten Tomatoes that got an 84 or better. So it's 22 in 1998. It's, about, it's a, literally 100 in 2016. The number of movies in Rotten Tomatoes that got uh, Deadpool's score or better, it's really risen pretty substantially. 
Oh, yeah. the, the historical question there again. So is that uh, uh, the number that had an 84 at the time of release or within some time window of release, or had the movies that came out in 2000 had up until 2008? Um, so I get my data, my, my data are present. Yeah. So as opposed to, so I think the concern would be that um, as, as they put more reviews into it, that the scores could change. As, as movies age, people like them less, right? So, so that would be the concern, right? So that's right. why there's so many hundreds today because that's cutting edge. Whereas what we saw, right. you know, I watched right. something from you know ten years ago today. It no, I, I I hear. I mean, but but these are contemporary Rotten Tomatoes. Th these are based on the Rotten Tomatoes scores at the uh, time. At the time. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, there isn't. I mean, so. I don't have, actually, I don't have a time machine for this, but I'm, I guess my conjecture, my strong conjecture, is that those are not changing over time after the first year, okay. just because the way they average scores. <laughs> Great. So I, 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 I see your point. I don't think that's a problem, but I, I see your point. Uh, another way to look at the same data is to ask the question, how many movies are there per year with a, an 80 or bigger on Rotten Tomatoes? And we're, you know, the, like the 100th best movie in, in 1998 or something, it's like there's 30 of them. The hundredth best movie by the end of this period is it's like there are 90 of them. Uh, um, sorry, there are, the hundredth best movie has a score of 90 or better. I misspoke. There are a lot of movies that critics are regarding as as quite good in the most in the more recent period. Look if you look at the fraction of the movie instead of the number. So maybe oh. there are 100 good ones. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm with you. I mean, so no, I'm completely with you. But my view is that the bad ones are irrelevant in the sense that if, as long as people can find the good ones, that's all they care about. So I'll show you pictures where there's like an explosion. I won't. I won't. I, if there were three hours, I would show you pictures where there's an explosion in the range of products by quality. But if you weight it by how much their how much attention is paid to them, things are very upward sloping because there's sort of no consumer attention being paid to the bottom of the distribution. So, so yeah, that's that's a good question though. It, if it were by share, we're not getting better at making these things. That's in some sense my point. It's hard to predict. Right. We're not getting better at making stuff. It's so just that we more good stuff. exactly there's more stuff that's ran, in some sense randomly good. All right. Oh, in, in fact, so the New York Times critic Manola Dar just stopped. She, she's complaining in 2014. Stop buying so many movies. Uh, yes, there were good and great movies. There are bluntly too many lackluster, forgettable, just plain bad movies pouring into theaters, distracting the entertainment media. She's complaining that it's so hard. She has to sift through all this stuff. What's her job, by the way? But anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, stop making so many, so many movies. Okay. Um, now, is the new stuff good? I, I can say a little bit about this in something that's kind of like the consumer approach. I don't have, if you think about movie consumption, it's hard to get data consumption by time and vintage. One way to sort of get that is from TV listings. So think about stars and HBO and Showtime and stuff like that. Imagine getting all those data so you know in the year 2010 which movies were, were being shown by vintage. And if you do that same kind of analysis I talked about before with data where, again, we're using listings as consumption shares, you end up with a picture like this, that quality's been rising. And you know it flattens out but doesn't fall. It's, it continues to be you know, pretty strong-ish in recent periods. So it's not inconsistent with what the critics are saying about the value or usefulness of the new stuff. Does that say that the worst movies were in the 1775? It does, it does say that. The Godfather, obviously, is an interesting example. What's that? <laughs> yeah, that's actually, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, and again, just to be clear, this is the vintage as a whole. 
right? It's a vintage as a whole. So I mean, there's some really dynamite movies that came out in those. But but uh, yeah. what would the role of sequels be? Like, I, at least, you know, end of one, it seems like everything is a sequel today. Yeah. But that wasn't the case when I was a kid. So, um, I think it's sort of a, it's a different topic, but I, I'll say, I mean, if you think about the role of indies and majors, mm. and if, if the way the world works is that it's really hard to predict, then maybe what that means is you outsource innovation if you're a big guy. And what you do is you invest in predictably six. Spider-Man 17 is a good investment, right? And so that's why, and in fact, you see exactly those kinds of things happening in music. You see them uh, probably in movies as well. You see uh, that the majors, it's not that the majors have no role in this world. Their role is to, to use their muscle at, at distribution and so forth and to, to invest in predictably successful things as opposed to being the, uh, 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 the ones who do the innovation. Yeah. How does online and offline world interact, physical world interact, right? So in particular for movies, where there's still like physical capacity of theater is still constrained. Yeah. And given this sort of fixed norm of distribution, like in some sense, the majors still have a stronghold there and that's still constrained and they're still sort of operating in an older world. Yeah, I mean, there's, we have 40,000 theaters in the US and it sounds like a lot, but there's really only room for Couple hundred movies a year, which and we're getting a couple thousand movies a year produced. So, uh, but but again, I'm not sure that's a constraint because if you think about the new world, in the new world, I could make a movie that would only I only anticipated it would appeal to 100,000 people. If I had such a movie, there's no theater I could put it in where I could cover the nut, right? Because I'd get six people here, six people there, six people there. I'd lose money in every theater. So I mean, I'm not sure. So it is true that there's still this. Bottleneck, but I'm not sure it's what's constraining that that, that glut of production because I think these the the the, the smaller scale digital movies. So yeah. So I, I I don't think that constrains production production story at all, but it does constrain. So if we can imagine a different world mm. where we actually don't have physical constraints either. Yep. The, the distribution of composition and who who holds who distributes what kind of movies right. will be very different. Does it release that bottleneck? It certainly releases yep. the production bottleneck. Yeah, no, my, my claim is that th there isn't a bottleneck down. If you look at what's being produced, the, the, and this goes a little bit beyond what's in the book, but you look at this growth in production, there's enormous growth in movies that are sort of hobbyist movies. But there's also pretty substantial growth, and I should credit my co-author, Mary Benner, um, there's some pretty substantial growth in, uh, my wife, uh, in movies kind of in the half million to five million dollar range. And if you look at how they're distributed, they're distributed digitally. And I don't think there's any intention to distribute them another way, just because they don't seem to be uh, intended to be popular enough for, for theatrical distribution. So, so there's, no, there's no constraint distribution. They're, they're just like, at home. Well, but do those I don't well yeah. no one really knows, but I will say this. That you have a bunch of entities that repeatedly enter, and it's not, and not hobbyist costs, you know, millions of dollars. And so if we're willing to be economists and say entry implies expected profits, then yes. <laughs> Today I'm going to be willing to be an economist. <laughs> yeah, I guess this goes back to my earlier question, which is the IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes story, I'm having a harder time in this case than in the music case, calling it quality as opposed to just proliferating product space and keeping the niche case. Right. So, I mean, a bunch of stuff on Netflix that I would watch and she might have no interest in, you know, right. like, yeah, I mean, I guess the question is, uh, what does it mean? So 
imagine a world in which uh, there, there a, a kung fu movie can get a 90 and a romantic comedy can get a 90, but nobody wants to watch both of them. Right. Then, right. in some sense, the kung fu fan is not necessarily happier than he or she yeah. was before. But if we add across people, there's more satisfaction being delivered. But I still, I still see your, your point. There's a horizontal issue. Um, there's potentially a horizontal issue going on here. And I don't think that, I don't think that, that upsets the argument, but it changes the interpretation. Of the interpretation. Right. Okay. Right. Because qual you're right. Quality connotes a vertical quality, and it may just be more people can derive enjoyment. Right. I, I take the point. Okay. I mean, it, it's hard for me to think about like what was the gap in music that we're filling. Well, and I mean, in music, it's also it's, it's harder. Could have music. It's just that I mean, we don't have really clear measures of ex ante sort of size of artists or something. You know, whereas with movies, we can look at budgets, and so we, we know what it means to aim in the middle. We don't really know what it means to aim in the middle with music. Um, okay, so I guess I won't. What should I do? Uh, I I think I should, for one thirty. Yeah. So. Um, Yes. Rather than talking about more industries, let me sort of jump ahead a little bit and talk about some, some, some digital good news. So, do, 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 some pictures, nice pictures, there we go. Fifty Shades of Grey, blah, blah, blah. Actually, can I talk about this for a second, and then I'll, I'll get to the post-tour of the industries. Uh, the book industry is one where, you know, what's an ex-ante loser? Again, apologies, apologies for the loser word, but it's a self-published book. Right? This is a book that can't get, I mean, I know there are exceptions, Stephen King self-published as an experiment, but by and large, self-published books are books that where real, or regular, <laughs> real publishers, regular <laughs> traditional publishers have said, no, thank you. This is, I find this to be kind of an interesting picture. This well, is, at least you didn't say academic books. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're supposed to say, who's publishing your book? It's like, right? I'm more interested in the legitimacy than money. Um, uh, although, although I do accept donations. Anyways, this is, uh, I, I love this because um, the, the, for a while, the New York Times bestseller list excluded uh, self-published books and books priced at $5 or less, which is funny because it sounds like you know, old guard incumbent protection of the industry, which in fact it was. And the only, or at least it seemed like to me, is this being recorded? I probably shouldn't have said that. Um, <laughs> but USA Today, right, that newspaper you trip over leaving a crappy hotel room, uh, has a top 150 uh, by week, and they've had it for, since 1997 or something, 93. And um, that one was uh, was very honest in the sense that any any self-published books were in there, ebooks were in there, whatever. And if you look at that and you tally up the books that first appeared as self-published books, so this is a little bit of work. You've got to figure out not just the the who, who's publishing it now, but who how how did it first commercially appear? And this is from uh, work with Imke Reimers. Um, you see that self-publishing is kind of non-existent until right around the time the Kindle appears, and then we get to 10% of books overall and 40% of romance, and it's it's titles, not sales. So I mean, Fifty Shades alone would get you to a lot a high share of sales, but this is by titles. So this is really kind of astounding. These are books that 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 really are the the the, the left field books. I'll mix my metaphors again. Self-published books that end up in the right tail of the sales distribution—that's a, a really profound, a really profound change. Astounding circumvention of gatekeepers in books, and it's not just Fifty Shades. Even though there, it's a trilogy and a box set, so there are four titles, but it's still not just that. Okay, um, let, let me uh, uh, not talk about this, but I, what I want to go ahead and talk a little bit about is some of this after we, yeah. So taking a little bit of stock. 
So where we started, collapsing revenue in music, threat to intermediaries, and therefore a threat to nurture and adult supervision, the need for more IP protection. But what happened, cost reductions and lots of new products. Because of unpredictability, many of the new products are appealing to consumers, and the new vintages are good compared with the old. Uh, I would say there's strong evidence in music, movies, television, and books. And so that's the basis of my conclusion that we're experiencing a digital renaissance. Uh, I, maybe I should just, just talk a little bit about. So, so can, you, can you talk about the work you've done with co authors on the, sort of the structure of the industry? So you've talked about the industry. Yes. And because yes. of the heavily of the industry, but talk about the structure yeah. of the industry. Yes, yeah, yeah. So let me let me talk about that. So the if you uh, take music, for example, or movies for that matter, but take music, um, you know, the, traditionally the major record labels uh, were responsible for a small share of releases, but a very large share of sales, something like ninety percent of sales. I mean, it depends which measure you use, but some very predominant share of sales. And they were they would. Uh, they would sign new artists, and they would, you know, they would take chances on them. In the old days, they'd stick with them for a while. I mean, what seems to have happened, and then you have this large kind of fringe of independent record labels. It's always existed. It's always had lots of releases, but it's always been, much of it's been marginal because they don't really get produced, or they don't really get promoted on the radio and, and distributed very much in, 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 in major record stores. What seems to have happened since digitization is an actual reduction in the number of releases by the traditional major entities. And of course, this explosion in release that's largely attributable or completely attributable to the indies and the self-release stuff. Now, I guess you know this raises the question, what's the role of the traditional players? And it, it does look like they're, they're, uh, they're releasing, uh, if you look at what they're releasing, it's stuff by artists who have had past success. So it's more predictably successful stuff and uh, they, they do make use of the sort of digital minor league, if you will. If you look at people who release their own things or release on, on small scale kinds of uh, labels, one can now observe how successful they are and sign them knowing what one is buying. So I think what's happening is the majors, instead of being risk takers, you know, they're doing much less risk and focusing on what they're, they're good at, which seems to be the promotion of sort of predictably successful things. In movies, it's a little soon to say. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm doing this project also with Professor Benner, um, and uh, looking at, at, you know, as I said, there's this new kind of category of movies, and it seems as though it's largely new entities that are doing them, not the traditional entities that are doing them. And I mean, at the same time, there's an explosion in lower lower cost productions, some truly amateur stuff and some kind of middle tail stuff. There's also an increase in very expensive products. There's an increase in, in the number of movies in the un, over $150 million range, which is probably Spider-Man 17. It's, I mean, it's a safe bet. Yeah, it's a safe bet worth investing a ton in, yeah. So related to this question, have you done some work on sort of the, the labor supply, right? So it's not sort of like analogous to like entrepreneurship or something. It's not, really, it's not like more entrepreneurship is always good, and people are risking their lives and right. giving up secure jobs, right. et cetera. Um, right. So this this might be very enticing for like people who say, "Oh, I can make a life out of it." Right. Um, so I don't know, like, whether I well, I did. So I did one exercise along these lines. I looked at the explosion in, in, in uh, self-published books, and I thought, "Gosh, so uh, a lot of these books are are, are are failures." On balance, is this a good thing? So I thought, "How long does it take to write a book?" Well, Stephen King can do it in six months. 
So let's take every book and six months of labor, let's multiply this by you know minimum wage or something. If you do sort of some rough calculations like that, so taking a little bit seriously the idea that entry has costs, right? And I, I do believe in free entry and social inefficiency, so I get your point. Um, the, it, it still looks like the benefits are bigger than the costs, but that said, there is there are sort of an interesting set of deep questions about this. If everybody can be a creator, you're gonna have a lot of people spending time on creating. Now it could be, some people would argue, and I'm not, it's above sort of my, beyond my professional knowledge to say whether this is true. Some people would say this is like an inherently good thing to do, like knitting, you know, or whatever. This is, you know, knitting, it's a, <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it's, a, it's, it's expression. It's, in fact, copyright scholars often talk about the, the features of copyright that promote expression. They don't think so much about consumers. They think about the rights of people to express themselves. So I don't know where to come down on that. You know, I don't know whether to say, wow, a bunch of people, you know, wasted time writing books last year. Um, uh, I mean, from an, I think an economic standpoint, there's a whole bunch of them that produce no, you know, no value. Uh, I mean, on balance, they seem to have, but I still, I find, I find your question intriguing. <laughs> uh, okay, so I, what I think I will, I don't know, I, I'm not, I, I'm, this has been lively and wonderful, so I don't have to, to talk about everything. I think what I'm going to do, let me, let me just, let me not talk about this. It's fine. I was expecting you to be quiet. <laughs> just kidding. I won't talk about this. Um, but this is good. I'm stimulating demand for the book. You have 15 um, minutes. I do? Okay. No, okay. No, I, but I have, I have plenty I could talk about. I'll, okay, I'll talk, tell you what I will talk about. Yeah. I'll talk a little bit about globalization. Actually, Mike, did I, did I speak to the point? I mean, I think I might have said most of what I know about the, the Here's the way I would translate it. In both of those industries, you talk about music and movies, that the majors retreat to exploit. Yes. But no, it's not just that. Yeah. They, they retreat to what they know. They got yes. no brainer. Like yep. Number 17. Yes. And, and they have the minor leagues. Yep. Yep. And yep. they treat the minor leagues as the minor leagues. And yes. the ones that are surviving somehow have figured out how to use the minor leagues to keep exploiting. Yes. Because they, they know a winner. Yes. He or she has made their mark. Yes. They, take them in and they have revitalized themselves through this minor league, major league. Yeah, so I have a chapter about the digital minor leagues. I mean, I think this is a big deal. I think if you look at all these industries, it's trivially easy to release a product. And, and it's not at all hard for this product to develop a track record. So if you're Justin Bieber, it's easy for you know, Scooter Davis to see how many times it's been watched, the, the song's been watched, or if it's on Spotify, it's easy to see. To verify how many times people have streamed the song, and I have a long list of movies somewhere in the in the in the paper in the book, uh, movies that were made for under hundred thousand dollars that ended up you know being reviewed on Metacritic, and getting a fifty or better, which is not a great score, but that's where you see Tina Dunham and Avril Duvernay. That's where you see all these people who end up being a big deal. They're able to enter with a minor league. They could use mom's credit card for heaven's sake, and they could actually you know become somebody. Yeah. Let me ask you if you take the argument this far, uh, because I think you make a strong argument that the traditional curation activities in cultural activities are at best flawed, we all know that, but also you know, keeping out stuff that does contribute to um, at least reveal preference and, and arguably consumer yeah. welfare. Um, it shouldn't surprise any economic historian that traditional news media believes Facebook, Google, etc., should be policed. What the hell are they doing on my turf, etc.? Right. right. Would you make the argument that um, 
curating that comes with big, big opportunity costs. So you mean the, the news slash Facebook case? So I mean, it's interesting. Let, let, me, let me dodge the question, then answer it. I feel that, the, so no, so seriously, I, I actually have done a bunch of work on newspapers, and I've thought about digitization in newspapers. And before 2016, I thought there was a pretty credible case to be made that digitization had actually been good news for news. But it, it seems that that's not, it seems that that's not right. Because, and here's what, what, what I mean that. I don't mean I'm cheating and looking at the election results and changing my research. But I think there's a question about whether there's a variety of truths versus a variety of songs. Right? And I think the, there may, there's a distinction to be made, uh, arguably, between um, what actually happened yesterday. There's a variety of facts. Okay, facts. We know there's a variety of <laughs> Okay, fine. But, uh, but yes, what happened yesterday versus what's a pleasurable set of sounds to listen to? And I, I think there's a bunch of very interesting questions about, I mean, on the one hand, on the one hand, uh, and w what I had been thinking around 2014 was, uh, the, 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 the newspaper industry, which, by the way, has a spectacular revenue decline, looks just like newspaper. Uh, looks just like music. Yeah. Starts in '99. It's not Napster, but it starts in '99, and it just it goes from 50 billion to 20 billion pretty fast. In a decade. Yeah, yeah, and and it's pretty much. And Hal Varian doesn't like when I say this, but that's pretty much Google's revenue. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, he makes the good point that they were they were already declining. So I'm not I'm not digging that. But but, um, but, the, but I mean the the. Uh, but at the same time, if you ask questions like you live, general social survey, you know, do you know who your congressman is? That didn't get worse. And if you think about a consumer's perspective, I can have free CNN. I have a worse local newspaper in most markets, but I have free CNN. And so you might worry that I'm not going to know who my dog catcher is, but I know who, you know, anyway. So it's, it's, it seemed at least potentially like good news. But as I thought more deeply about it, I wondered again whether variety of facts versus variety of songs, whether it was analogous. So I decided to, to think more about it before putting my foot in my mouth and writing about it. The one thing that's intermediate is books. I mean, movies, I know there's serious movies and serious art and there's serious music. And, but in some sense, books really are, are closer to the serious art end of popular culture. And so we might, if we're worried, if we're honestly going to consider the possibility that losing the publishing houses and their nurture is bad for culture. I think that's the place to look. And so in the, in the book chapter, I tried to take that pretty seriously. So on the one hand, you see this explosion that I showed you in the fraction of uh, winning products, big sellers that are self-published. But another thing to look at is to think, what would a serious person say about this? Suppose I had a list of like literally good books, and uh, like the New York Times notables and ask the question, uh, what's happening over time to the share of sales accounted for what the guardians of culture say are good versus the self-published books and so forth? And what you see when you do that is that the New York Times notable, notables account for a small but not, not, not changing share of sales. The self-published stuff goes from nothing to some non-trivial share of sales. And what the self-published stuff seems to be pushing out is like mass market fiction. And so I, I, I sort of uh, timidly uh, conclude that there's no evidence that digitization has coarsened consumption. There's anecdotal evidence that digitization has actually produced some good culture, but it's no more than anecdotal. There are a few interesting examples of books that started life as self-published books that then became critically, not, not just commercially, but critically pretty successful. You know, one cadre is like The Martian or Still Alice. But a much kind of more elevated cadre, there, there's a, a book called The Naked Singularity, 
Uh, and there's, there are a couple of these books that were uh, originally self-published. And then in one case, University of Chicago Press, which normally publishes you know, more guns, mm -hmm. less crime, and stuff like that, uh, republished one of these books so that it could be eligible for the Man Booker Prize. And in fact, it got shortlisted. I may be getting the prize wrong. But so there's, an, there's some interesting examples of digitization um, facilitating some, some cultural renaissance. But I, I don't say there's any systematic evidence for that. There's anecdotal evidence for that and no systematic evidence of coarsening of culture in books through digitization. So, so that, we, that's, should, we should be really careful. Uh, we, so you we mean? Shouldn't, we shouldn't. What I take from this is, hey, we know entrenched media has its own interests. Let's be careful about this. Beyond civil liberties issues, am I right or wrong? Well, so what do you mean by be careful? I'm not sure. About censoring, quote, alternative media that is, quote, about news. I feel like it's a it's outside what I can say anything intelligent about. I mean, again, if it were like music, then we want to let a thousand flowers bloom, or whatever. Uh, but I don't I don't know. It's it's we're having we're we're in an interesting period in history where different. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what to say. I'm gonna dig holes for myself. Bad deep, deep holes. Okay. Can I ask a question? Let's go sure. back to one of Shane's questions. All these examples of where the digitization affects the cost of production. Yes. So Shane mentioned opera. Yeah. Opera is a space where digitization has had no impact yeah. on opera. Right. So that would be a, like a counterfactual. You would, you, would, you would not expect, if you did the same study in the world of opera, right. you would not find what you found because the cost of production have not go down. Oh, right, right. So even, even to make a recording, right. Because I still need to put together a production so or a symphony. Like a, so I, sorry, I have a very recent experience with that, which I was in the Royal Opera House in London two weeks ago with yeah. a friend who's a conductor. <laughs> <laughs> and there actually it has this, been this big digitization of opera. So there are a bunch of operas. Um, there's an opera in Australia, I learned, that actually it's primary, that, and they, they stream basically opera, and their greatest number of subscribers is in Florida. <laughs> for a lot of folks, because older folks like opera. And so... Um, <laughs> And, and actually, um, a lot of the other things that would fall into that category, like the ballet, like the um, New York City Ballet does these digital, like, six times a year, you can go to a movie theater in, in IMAX, watch um, the American Ballet Theater, you know, Dance Coppelia, or one of these classic ballets. There are actually... The productions change, but like, so that's, a, that's a distribution model. But the opera, there are these operas that are, like... Cheap. They're like cheap and and like virtual, uh, or not. There, there's like some live audience, but the, okay. the, it's like right. a different huh. production and distribution. Not creation of new. So so much you can write the paper if you want. And I don't think there's enough data for like more than that. But that's that is there is like an opera. Yeah, it's a like cost disease problem, I think. Uh, so I I should. I'm not going to talk. Let me just get to the end, so we have a sense of closure, and then we can just continue talking about whatever you want. But I want to have a sense of closure, that, <laughs> if you don't mind. Um, yeah, there's some stuff about globalization in the book and so forth. I won't talk about that. Some more digital good news. So a little bit about this. Let me just get to this, and then again we can talk about whatever you want. So what I take away from all this. Um, is, you know, for cultural war rewards, there's lots of evidence of good new products, even if there's also an open slush pile. I don't dispute that there's plenty of crap out there. Uh, there is. But there's a lot of good stuff. And there's no evidence of degradation of consumption. So the book example I talked a little bit. So I would say lighten up uh, to the cultural war rewards. Uh, for copyright policymakers, I would say that the take industry claims that the sky is falling with a grain of salt. 
Uh, and, and there are two sort of distinct parts of this. One is, I think people should ask the right question, which is what's happening to the quality and quantity of new products as opposed to what's happening to revenue. That's a parochial right question. It's an important right question. We're at a business school for heaven's sake, but it's not the right question for copyright policy. And then the second part, which is sort of equally revolutionary, but sounds obvious, is answer it with evidence. You know, bring evidence-based policy making uh, to copyright. And for consumers, I think we should just sit back and relax and <laughs> enjoy the renaissance. Okay, now we can talk about whatever you want. <laughs> what would be an example of evidence-based policy making in copyright? So, I mean, so for example, uh, so suppose somebody comes to Congress and says, uh, we're, we're dying out here. Uh, we are responsible oh, for lots of jobs. So, being a distributor no, Motion Picture Association of America. Okay. Uh, they would say, look, um, we employ a lot of people. This is an important industry. And people are stealing our stuff. We've got to do something. Congress, you need to help me with this. And there's nothing wrong with any of those statements. But I think the, the question is, what, what is the, what, what's at risk here? What's at play? Is it just about protecting jobs? Is it about protecting consumers and assuring a continued flow of new products. You know, it's interesting, the, the, the former head of the uh, Recording Industry Association, uh, Kerry Sherman, in his testimony before Congress, he says things like jobs, 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 but he also says things like this is what's important is consumers. It's important to make sure that consumers still have new products. And so uh, he doesn't then bring any evidence to bear about that. He talks about jobs, jobs, jobs. I think the, the relevant evidence is not just what's happening to my revenue. The relevant evidence is what's happening to the experience of consumers. That, that's the, the argument I would make. Now, it's a hard problem. It's a hard problem. I've tried to convince you know, WIPO. I've done a lot of work with the European Commission. I've tried to convince the, the you know, USPTO that they should set up an observatory and keep track of what's happening to these industries. Uh, I haven't gotten anybody a bite, so it's mostly on my hard drive. <laughs> but, but I think the, the issue is, the right question is what's happening to the experience of consumers and the products being created. And there, I, I grant they're hard questions, like how do we assess quality? These are hard questions, but if we had data, we could at least have a conversation. Yeah. Again, with analogous issues with happening protection as well, part of it, is, it seems that it's just really, like, it's really difficult to have not, not uniform Protection in some sense, you can actually have. Suppose no live in a world where we can specify, can, can let the copyright protection be contingent on nature of the industry or cost right. production, etc. Right. And at the same time, the cost of protection and clarification of boundary rights can be determined without, without friction. Right. Then we, we sort of feel like we, we want that world. <laughs> well, we do and we don't. No, I agree with you. I mean, so some people talk about uh, in IP protection that's, that's, you know, that's specific to an industry. That's a hard, hard problem. I think the real issue is that particular proposals come before decision-making bodies. Should we reform in this way or not? That's really the only time we get a chance to weigh in. Should copyright last for 75 years or 175 years? Be a nice time to weigh in and say, well, why? To what end would you want it to last for more? Is it, you know, because it, it, there might not be any evidence that supports that, you know, evidence that's relevant to the public policy rationale. I, I don't... Nobody's ever asking economists or other social scientists or scholars, design me a system from scratch. <laughs> but, the, but they do consider proposals here and there. Should we lengthen this? Should we do that? You know, and I think that's where we could weigh in and, and, and ask the discussion to be evidence-based. 
Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck getting home today, right? <laughs> uh, so, so I want to build a little bit on the horizontal differentiation thing we talked about. So yep. um, when you talked about the sort of value um, of these sort of losers that end up as winners, yep. Yep. right? That, that is sort of premised on this idea that like you have some decision maker and maybe they have imperfect knowledge and therefore they can't perfectly predict ahead of time what's going to be good. Yeah. But it seems to me like there's an analogy there. You could imagine someone who knows their own preferences so well that actually they can pick. Ex ante, they do a perfect job on their own mm -hmm. preferences. Mm -hmm. It's just that I'm not very good at other people's preferences. Yeah. Right? And so if that's true, then it seems like there's an analogy between horizontal differentiation across consumers and sort of randomness between the, the left and right side of the tail mm -hmm. that you're mm -hmm. talking about. If that's true, then a lot of the gains that you're talking about, I think you could characterize them by saying, like, do you see that in industries that have more horizontal differentiation, people have more differences in the type of music they like to listen to than, say, the movies they like to watch, you would expect to have bigger gains in those places? Oh, I see what you mean. So, some anecdotes strongly suggest this. I mean, so there are a bunch of art forms or, or genres of music that were initially rejected by the recording industry because, so Mitch Miller didn't like rock and roll. And rap was hard for the recording industry to understand. And, and so if you, think about, uh, if you think about these technological changes as saying, you know what, we don't need permission from Mitch Miller to release albums. I mean, that, I guess that's sort of, you, what you're adding is a kind of a community specific dimension to the story. Right. Yeah, I think the answer is yes. I don't, I should look at it that way. In a lot of cases, it's hard to kind of classify either. I don't observe people or sometimes I don't observe consumption by type of person for most of these products, but in principle, I'm very sympathetic to that interpretation. Yeah, because I mean, it seems like it would be a nice sort of organizing principle for thinking about if we think about some new industry and digitization happening there. Yep. Like if you, if you parameterize this and you're like, there's a strong trend, being able to sort of project it on that. And now I yeah. need to stop. Yeah. Okay. Let's <laughs> right. thank Joel. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That was, that was a lot of fun.